a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 88 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve from some of the best sportscasters in the business. Make sure to follow the show on Twitter by following me, at Radio underscore Logan. Also, if you would rate or review the show on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it. It's a big favor for the show, and it doesn't take a whole lot of effort. So if you're able to do that, throw some stars this direction. Otherwise, just listen and enjoy. That's okay, too. If you like the show, retweets and shares are greatly appreciated. I'm a one-man band. I don't have any marketing budget. That's how the show grows. So I appreciate it very much. This last weekend, I was really fortunate to work at the Final Four in Minneapolis for Westwood One Sports uh, with their broadcast team. And I wanted to just lift the curtain up a little bit on what it's like to be involved with a broadcast at the very highest level of the audio medium. Before we dive too deep, I don't want to give anybody the impression that I was Anywhere near an open mic. I was not calling the game. I was a production assistant, which basically meant I made copies of run sheets for the producers. I ran cables up and down from the upstairs booth down to the broadcast area. I brought food and drinks to the talent and the producers and the sound engineers. I was, I was a glorified runner. Not even a glorified runner. I was just a runner doing whatever odd jobs anybody involved with the crew needed done. That being said, I was able to really see uh, everything that went on during the broadcast. And what really stood out to me was just how complex the sound setup was. They sent a team of four production engineers to the stadium on Tuesday, and they spent Tuesday evening, all day Wednesday, all day Thursday... A good chunk of Friday just setting up all of the sound equipment, going through, testing microphones. And the way that it was set up is they had the production booth up where the football press boxes are above the playing surface. And then they had everything connected remotely through that production studio down to the broadcast area on the table court side. And what these sound engineers did is take... Every single microphone and every single pair of headsets and put them through a a master mixer so that not only could everybody hear each other, but so that everyone could hear each other through talkback so that the talent could hear what they needed to hear, but not some of the other people talking. It was a very complex routing of different microphones and seeing what went where and which wireless microphone could go to different parts of the arena. 
it was it was really interesting to watch them go through and test that. In addition to four sound people, they also had at least four producers who were there helping to direct traffic and make sure that people were in the right place. I know they had a logistics producer who was part of his job was just to make sure everybody had a car to the arena and that everybody was where they were supposed to be. It was a probably at least a 15, maybe close to a 20-man crew when you come down to engineers, producers, talent, etc. It was a big production on multiple floors, more microphones than I could count, and it was really cool to see how it was done. I also was really fortunate that they invited me to basically just sit in on their production meeting, and I can't go into a whole lot of details on what were said, but all the talent was there. Kevin Kugler was there. John Thompson was there. Jim Gray was there. Howard Denneroff, the executive producer of Westwood One, was there. And they all went over everything that was going to be said in the pregame show. They had every single segment. This is the clip we're going to come in with. This is the storyline we want to hit. This is the topics and who's going to talk about it, who's going to send it down to who. It was very, very planned out, which uh, compared to most of the pregame shows that I do at at my level, where it's me, myself, and I, I basically have five topics that I know I can hit. I talk about them until I run out of time and we get up to the broadcast and we start. That is not how they do things at the top of the industry. It was very planned out. It was very focused. It was cool to see how they laid that out, how they decide which stories they're going to talk about and which ones they don't. They had it down to what people they were going to interview during the game in the crowd and if those people said no, who their fallbacks were. I mean, it was very, very impressive the level of detail that they went into. Once we actually got to the games, it it was cool for me because... I really didn't have to do very much. The ship sailed so smoothly that I was basically able to just sit back and watch the games. They had an extra pair of headphones that I was able to put on and listen to the feed of the broadcast with uh, Kevin Kugler, John Thompson, and Clark Kellogg. What I realized, seeing everything that's going on while Kevin Kugler is doing play-by-play, is how little he misses He gets so much detail into his broadcast, and I always knew that. I've always really enjoyed his calls. He's been one of my favorite broadcasters, but now I would say I have even more respect for him. He's such an incredible talent. He always seems to have the right description at the right time, and some of the just clever lines that he has, and I just remember this one sticking out. It was when Matt Mooney for Texas Tech hit kind of the dagger three against Michigan State, And he ran down the floor with his arms spread out. And Kevin goes, are you not entertained? Of course, referencing the Gladiator movie. And I just remember thinking in my head, how do you come up with that on the spot? You couldn't possibly know that moment was coming. You just have to be able to think that quickly on your feet. And that is why he is doing the broadcast for Westwood One and I am bringing him sandwiches. So it was a great time. I'm really glad that I got to be a part of it. I would love to do it again if it ever comes back here. I don't think they're going to fly somebody out to do what what I was doing in the future. But 
All the same, it was an incredible experience, and I just wanted to share a little bit of what it was like uh, seeing everything as, as it happened before my eyes. Anyway, this week on the podcast, I'm visiting with Kevin Belby of the Montag Group. And Kevin went to Syracuse, planning on being a sportscaster, quickly realized that that was maybe not in the cards with his talent, and ended up becoming a sportscasting agent. And I've talked with a lot of people uh, who think that, you know, if I just had an agent, someone to go get me jobs, I would be able to get more jobs, and I'd climb the ladder quicker. And I was really happy that Kevin responded to my request, because we go through all of the questions and concerns and things that I hear about from fellow sportscasters about what it would be like to have representation, when uh, we should have representation, what representation is able to do for you. So uh, we really dive deep into a whole lot of different topics involving sportscasters and agents, and I think you're going to like this episode. But anyway, Kevin Belby of the Montag Group, Thanks so much for coming on the Say the Damn Score podcast. Logan, uh, first time, long time. Uh, <laughs> thanks for having <laughs> me on. I enjoy your podcast. Um, you guys, you always have on good guests uh, with unique and different stories. And uh, as somebody who's a nerd about this business, it's, it's fun to listen to when I'm doing the laundry or on the elliptical, something like that. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious. I didn't do as much research for you as I usually do for everybody, just because I think I want to take it into a different direction, maybe a little less about your story and more into, you know, advice for people trying to come up as to when to go for an agent, how to handle an agent, all that fun stuff. But I do want to start with you going to Syracuse. At what point did you decide that you didn't want to go into sportscasting after going through the Newhouse program. Yeah, so I went to uh, enrolled in Syracuse in the fall of 2009, and I think, uh, like everybody else, just assumed that once I got in, I was going to be the next Bob Costas or Sean McDonough, or in my case, Ian Eagle. Um, for me, going to Syracuse was really the culmination of um, going to I- Bruce Beck and Ian Eagle's sports broadcasting camp for several years and in high school and you know, Ian just talked about how great Syracuse was and the tradition at Newhouse and the impact it had on his career. And, you know, that's when the New Jersey Nets were still in New Jersey and were very good. So I was like, all right, I'm going to go to, uh, to Newhouse, be the next Ian Eagle and be the voice of the Nets. Kind of had it all figured out by uh, 13, 14. And when I got to, to Syracuse, uh, really first or second day, went to the student radio station, WAER, you know, the famous station. And uh, realized I wasn't the only person trying to be the next Ian Eagle. There are about a hundred other uh, guys, a hundred other white guys that look pretty similar to me. We're, we're from New Jersey or from Long Island, New York, you know, Westchester, similar area. And um, everybody wanted to be Ian Eagle. So from that point on, I just kind of opened my eyes to the rest of the business, whether it was um, news or entertainment, um, and eventually started to learn and be attracted more to just the business side of media. So I went through Syracuse and continued the the broadcast journalism degree because I knew I wanted to do something with it, uh, intern with ABC News and NBC for the Olympics. And um, 
it was just, you know, my advisor said to me one time that the key to figuring out what you want to do is first figuring out what you don't want to do. So I just experimented with a whole bunch of different things. I was also the manager for the men's basketball team at Syracuse and thought about being a basketball agent and, you know, sat down with a pretty prominent agent for about a half hour. And he said to me, you don't want to do this. Uh, Everybody's paying players. It's a very dirty business. And it was at that point, I was talking to my advisor in Newhouse and she said, well, did you know that broadcasters have agents? And I didn't even know that they did. Um, So I started to learn more about that side of, of the business Talked to Gideon Cohen, um, who later wound up hiring me and is a, co- a colleague of mine now with the Montag Group. And that's kind of how it, it all happened. So when's the last time you've been on the air? Last time I've been on the air, um, it's been a while. I mean, I've done some 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 radio on the side. I, um, I'm the general manager of a semi-pro basketball team called Bayheim's Army. Um, it's a group of former Syracuse basketball players that compete in this $2 million basketball tournament on ESPN in the summertime. So once in a while, I'll jump on the local uh, ESPN radio up in Syracuse and do five-minute interviews and things like that. But um, where I kind of was the main person driving conversation, it's probably since 2013 when I graduated college, so a long time. Was it a difficult decision to, to make the jump? to the business side and give up the dream of being the next Ian Eagle? Or was it something that you're just like, I don't have this talent set the same way that some other people do. And I just don't want to do it. Well, I think as I continue to learn more and more about the business, you learn about the highs, you know, you learn about the NCAA tournaments going on right now. And you see Jim Nance and what a cool job that is calling the final four. But you also learn about the challenges as well. And you've got to be willing to move to the middle of nowhere and work hundreds and hundreds of low A, single A baseball. You know, if you're a reporter more on the local level, you've got to be able to, to work on Christmas and Thanksgiving and, and just make these different types of, of sacrifices. And for me, I think once I considered all of that, I knew I loved the industry, but I didn't love being on air enough to make those sacrifices. So um, it was just trying to figure out what I really enjoyed. And the four things I always enjoy were sports, media, business, and the law. And this was really a perfect profession to tie those four things together. I'm sure it was really difficult to give up the big bucks you can make uh, coming up in sportscasting too. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It was. <laughs> so let's get into into the kind of meat of this conversation. Now let's start off with yeah. uh, a nice broad question and I don't believe this to be the case. I think this is kind of a flawed way of looking at it, but I've talked to the different broadcasters either through this podcast or just people I know that think that getting an agent is kind of the magic solution to solve all of their frustrations in the industry. True or false and why? Totally false. I mean, it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, we, we certainly as agents feel like we can provide, we're providing a service and we can bring a benefit to our clients, obviously, or else we wouldn't be in business. But I think that there are way too many broadcasters who kind of feel for lack of a better word stuck. And they just feel like if only I had an agent, they could get me unstuck and calling, you know, ACC basketball on ESPN. And that's just not uh, the reality of the business. You know, you, you kind of use the word, uh, I, don't, I think you might have said something about magic. Uh, we we tell 
prospective clients. We, we can't pull a rabbit out of hat, you know. Uh, we can get you in the door. We can help make connections for you. We can tell you what to put on your reel. We can give you constructive feedback. But at the end of the day, it's up to you to perform. And uh, if your talent level is not up to the to, to what a major network or a regional network wants, then you know an agent an agent can't push you any further. Um, so at the end of the day, your talent is really what's going to rule, rule out and, um, having an agent isn't going to make, isn't going to change that. Is being stuck. Have you ever run into somebody who's been stuck, who frankly may be the outlier to what we just talked about, who did find an agent and just take a 180 for them? Yeah. Um, sometimes, sometimes that's definitely the case. I mean, for us, um, you know, we have, we have a news and a sports division. Um, so just like we have clients at Fox Sports and CBS Sports, we have clients at Fox News and CBS News and CNN. And so overall, I mean, we probably have a couple dozen people reaching out to us each week um, combined between news and sports. And for the most part, those, those people aren't, aren't ready and are the ones that are, I think, feeling stuck and just feeling like we can pull them out um, from that rut. Uh, but besides, there are some some random cases, some rare cases where, hey, this this person really is an undiscovered, you know, diamond in the rough, and and we can help them reach the next level of their career. But for the most part, if you're out there, we're gonna find you, and that's that's kind of the way. I, I think that's the, the another misconception of, about our business. Expand on that a little bit. You said if you're out there, you'll find them. What processes do you go through to discover talent? It's pretty exhaustive. I mean, for anchors and reporters, we're constantly combing the local markets. You know, even if you're in market 126, we're out there looking for you. And on the play-by-play side, you know, we we look at services like STAA and are just checking out talent pages on there. Uh, You know, if we watch somebody's reel on YouTube, the way their algorithm works is, there are five more reels lined up on the side after that um, that we'll just watch and watch and watch and scout. You know, me as a younger guy, I'm scouring Twitter and Instagram really nonstop um, to try to find you know future clients and people that we can we feel like can be the next stars of the business. You look for talent that a major network is going to want to work with, and obviously, play by play and sportscasting and. Basically, anything in media, for that matter, is going to be subjective. What type of talent, what specific attributes do you look for in talent that you know uh, networks respond to? A lot of different things. I mean, first, uh, obviously, it helps to have a great voice. That is something that can stand out. But really, we're looking for any type of difference makers. You know, if you present really well in in your on-cameras, uh, which a lot of play-by-play guys honestly don't and kind of um, neglect that, that, that part of the, the craft. Um, if you've got a great voice, if you have great chemistry with your uh, analyst. Um, and, and then this is such a small business at the same time that from a character standpoint, we're going to hear about people who are good teammates and people who aren't good teammates. Um, it's just between the internet and between how small of a business this is, like I said earlier, we're, we're going to know about most broadcasters before they even reach out to us. Um, so, and, and if we don't, their, their tape will speak for themselves. So I know that 
a lot of the frustrations that I've heard is, you know, if you only have a radio tape, that really doesn't do you much good when you're trying to reach the higher levels and get TV work. Do you have, do you agree with that? Or are you looking for purely uh, TV reels and TV demos? We certainly do most of our business on the TV side, but we have a lot of clients in radio as well. And at the end of the day, people who, executives who are hiring on the radio side, they want to hear radio tape. And executives who are hiring on the TV side, they want to hear TV tape. Um, Some don't care, but most are pretty particular. And same thing where if you're applying for a basketball job, nobody wants to hear your baseball tape, even if it's an 18, 18 inning game and a walk-off home run. Um, you, they want to hear what you're being potentially hired for. So um, obviously we prefer to, to, to watch and listen to TV tape just because we do more business in those areas and there, there's just more going on at that level. Um, but we'll, we'll take a look at anything. So if somebody, let's just pretend devil's advocate, here's a hypothetical scenario. Somebody has a dynamite radio tape, and the old adage is if you, it's easier to go from radio to TV than from TV to radio. Do you ever use a killer radio demo as a path to TV? One of our clients? In, in general, wide open question. I think it's better to have a, a faked TV tape if you're applying for a TV position than to send a, a radio tape for a TV position. And we've had clients get jobs that way. And, you know, Ian Eagle, who I brought up earlier in the conversation, he got the Nets job that way. But, and that was in 1994 or, or 1993. So I've told clients, uh, I've told friends who are not clients, if Ian Eagle can make a fake TV tape back in 1994 with today's technology, you know, you should be able to do it pretty easily. Um, I've had clients make fake radio tapes and just bring a college buddy to the Barclays Center and sit down with them for a quarter and pretend to be the analyst um, while they're making a play-by-play demo. So I think it's, it's important to be specific in what, what you're sending out to agents or, or executives. Okay, so when you're looking at demos, looking for talent, you know, a lot of people get opportunities, and I've had this, another thing that I've had conversations with a lot of other broadcasters about and uh, have different feelings, if you have a one-camera shoot, uh, no replays, no production value outside of the high school or moving the camera back and forth, I mean, can you treat something like that as a TV demo, or is it more of just the radio call? Does that make sense? Absolutely, you can evaluate that, even if the production quality is low. Um, I think it's just good. Like you mentioned earlier, it's just different different disciplines. It, it really is, and I think people can confuse that. But it, it's a to, it's, it is a totally different job calling basketball radio play-by-play versus calling basketball TV play-by-play. Now, you know, you should be able to do both. But, um, yeah, even if it's a high school one-camera shot, that certainly is, you know, material that could be evaluated. Okay, so if – I were to come up to you and just say, uh, as a general, not actually me, but just hypothetically, anybody out there comes and says to you, when is it time for me to get an agent? What do you tell them? That's the most common question we get. And, you know, uh, after I graduated Syracuse, uh, I spent another three years up there and I went to law school. And what you learn in law school is the answer to every question is the same. It depends. <laughs> and that's really the answer to this question. 
Um, there is no right time and no wrong time to get an agent. For us, uh, first of all, it depends where the broadcaster is in their career. And it also depends on the type of agency you're speaking to. For us, our connections and our, our network really is focused on the regional and national network levels. You know, we're not placing clients in, <clears throat> for the most part, in college jobs or in minor league baseball jobs. So if we're bringing on a client, we want to feel like they're at that regional or national level or they're a step away from there and we can help them get there. Um, so that's really, you know, again, there's no right answer to the question. So, some clients and uh, broadcasters are ready for that at 22, but some are ready at 42. You know, that's interesting that you brought up because the Montag Group, of course, is one of the premier uh, sportscasting agencies, uh, at least as far as I'm aware of. But are there other ones that that might be a good fit for somebody else to go after some of those smaller jobs where uh, they can help them to find those? I, mean, I think that all of this stuff is available online um, when you... You just can search different talent agencies and um, see where their clients are. And you can see pretty easily where their connections and networks are. So maybe one agency is a better fit um, for where you are in your career. And at the same time, it's not totally uncommon for broadcasters to, broadcasters to have uh, different agents in, over the course of their career. For us, you know, we prefer to work with, with someone and be their only agent for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. Do you run into, for lack of a better word, predatory agencies that aren't really out to help clients and are just trying to, you know, rip off some money and, and maybe scam's not the right word, but not truly have the best interests of their clients in mind? And if so, how do you avoid them? Well, I think I think it's important before you get in, you know, this, this is a uh, certainly when you, when you work with an agent, it's a business partnership, but it's also a relationship. And you want to make sure that before you enter any relationship, you, you get to know the person on the other side. Uh, and, and I truly mean the person, who they are, what they stand for, what they represent. And you want to know what they represent, because at the end of the day, they're going to be representing you. Um, so if, if you, for, for example, for us, we never sign a client without meeting them in person um, because we want to sit down from them across the table, look them eye to eye and, and make sure that everybody's on the same page. Uh, we might say, Hey, this isn't a good fit. And they might say the same and there's no hard feelings, but we want to sit down with every, with our clients in a room and map out goals and make sure expectations are aligned and plan out the future um, and, and make sure that everybody's on the same page. Um, so I, I think it's, it's really comes down to the broadcasters making sure that they do their due diligence and not just signing up with an agent because they think they need an agent and they just assume it will take them to the next level. You gotta, you gotta make sure it, it's the right fit for you. When you look at a lot of the top talent, uh, we mentioned that we're recording this in the middle of, it's actually the Duke central Florida game. There's a lot of talent, a lot of top talent covering the NCAA tournament. Is it pretty much universal that once you hit that network level that you need an agent? Or are there exceptions of top talent to go without one? There certainly are exceptions. Um, I would say the majority of network broadcasters have agents. 
but but not everybody does. And I think at the end of the day, like I said at the beginning of the conversation, your talent is going to determine how far you can go in this industry. And I think that if you're Jim Nance and you never had an agent, eventually you'd be calling the NCAA tournament. But I think that us as an agency, as Jim Nance is one of our clients, you know, we try to help our clients get to that end goal faster um, and make their careers last longer. Um, but again, the, the talent does win out. So um, sometimes you do see broadcasters without agents at a very high level. What is, you mentioned, you know what, this is a service that you provide for announcers and for a service, there's always a cost. Is it, and let's use this as maybe a general question, not specifically with your group. What is the average commission and the cost for an agency service? The average commission, pretty pretty much industry standard, is around 10% of uh, your annual income. Do you take it out of each paycheck for each individual job, or is it like paying your taxes at the end of the year, uh, this is what you owe us for the year? Most clients pay us uh, monthly. You know, some will put us on direct deposit and have it bi-weekly. But at the end of the day, you know, we want to be pretty amenable to, to our clients and, and try to work out something that's easiest for them. Who are the people that you as an agent have to build relationships with in order to be able to place uh, these broadcasters in positions that they want to be in? Really the decision makers, you know, at all the different networks, major TV networks, major radio stations, um, and you know, now, now the business is changing as well, digital outlets and podcast networks. Um, so, you know, we need to continue to always build our relationships and, and refine them and, and knows who's in charge of what, you know, a company like ESPN, for example, they have dozens of decision makers across pro sports and college sports and high school sports, uh, Olympic sports, X games. So, um, it, it it's constantly making sure we know who's in charge of what and building relationships with all those different executives. And then how difficult is the, the negotiating process in your shoes? Well, I think it's a, that's, it's a tough question to answer. Um, it, it all depends on the client and what we're negotiating for. And I, I mean, if it's someone's first game ever uh, on a regional network or a national network, there's really no negotiation you know it's just trying to help them get in the door but once they get in the door um and continuing to to build on their profile um you know a successful negotiation is going to happen when when all parties are trying to reach a common goal uh, at the same time it's our job to help our clients try to find leverage outside uh the building that they're currently working for as well you mentioned that you and i'm kind of bouncing all over the place because this is obviously a little bit outside of my area of expertise, but you mentioned that you find different potential clients in all kinds of places. And I was just, that got me thinking a little bit. What was maybe the the oddest place where you've ever, ever stumbled across a potential client? You know, I think this, this isn't that odd for me, but it's odd for my colleagues who are a little bit older. It's just... <laughs> finding clients on YouTube or Instagram, like I mentioned earlier, but one of my colleagues, 
he found one of his clients through uh, an Uber driver, and uh, he was he was taking an Uber back from the Final Four several years ago, and the, the Uber driver asked him what he did for a living, and he said, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a teacher at a local school. One of my former students is, you know, so-and-so working on a local radio station here. You need to check him out. And, you know, he did, and uh, he wound up being, uh, you know, turning into one of our clients about six months later. Yeah, I know we just, uh, I don't know how regularly you listen to the podcast. I know you said you're familiar with it, but we just talked with Charlie Steiner in uh, a, a previous episode, and he said that they found him at ESPN through a, a guy who was complaining to Steve Bornstein at a, who was selling him wine for the weekend. It's it's really kind wow. of bizarre how <laughs> just kind of random this industry can be. Very random. What questions do you usually get from from broadcasters up and coming that I haven't asked you yet? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, like I said earlier, the, the first one is always, when should I get an agent? Um, I think the other one is just kind of more general, you know, am I doing everything that I need to be doing? And, you know, that that's a very a tough question to ask because it's, it's you really got to be it's evaluated on a case-by-case basis right um it's it just i think it's important for broadcasters to know that it's not good enough to just do a good job on the air every night at seven o'clock on you know the minor league baseball game or the small college basketball game that you're calling um that is what's most important but you need to be developing relationships off the air you need to be working on your social media presence you need to be networking and you need to always have fresh reels carved up and and you should have a website. Um, This is really a, to to be successful in this business, as you know, Logan, it's really got to be a relentless pursuit of, of, and all of these things, they matter. You know, when you, when you get your quote unquote dream job, it's going to be impossible to, to point to, one or or two things that got you there. It's really going to be the accumulation of everything you've done for, for years and years and years. And, um, you know, I I was, I saw this quote from Brian Anderson a a week ago um, in an article about him. And, you know, he, he said that he spent nine years in minor league baseball calling a hundred games a year. And that's thousands and thousands of hours of minor league baseball. And, And, once he did that, that's when the calls started to roll in, maybe from an agent or from networks. And everything started to happen after that. So you've got to be patient, but you've got to just continue to to knock down doors and making sure you're doing everything in your power to be successful. So that's a, a common question we get. And I think that that's an answer that I give, you know, give or take what's happening, I guess, in your, in your it's, a, it's a kind of generic answer I give, but uh, it's dependent on where you are in your career, uh, adjust it a little bit. You mentioned earlier that a lot of people aren't necessarily very good in front of the camera on their stand-ups, and I have very limited uh, TV experience, none of which has included a stand-up, so I've done none of that. So I, I'm curious, what do you look for in on-camera work, and what do networks and high-level uh, broadcast decision makers look for as far as it goes with an on-camera presence? I think what networks look for, it's pretty simple. It's competence. Um, you're you're not 
Scott Van Pelt, you know, you're not going to be on air for an hour straight. All you've got to, you know, you're on air for 15 seconds a game max, you know, maybe 30 seconds max. So you just got to prove that you're competent, that you know where to look, that you're maintaining eye contact between the camera or your analyst, that you're dressed the part, that your hair is cut, that, you know, you know how to match a tie and a shirt and a suit, um, that you're, you're smooth enough to take that open and, and transition it to, with a question to your analyst, a good pointed question, um, bringing in the viewer and having them understand what, what they're about to watch and partake in. Um, but, you know, you don't need to be an A++ in your, in your on cams. You know, you're really not going to get hired for that. But you might, get, you might not get hired if they're really bad. So you just want to make sure they're competent. And then make sure that you nail, absolutely nail the highlights and the stretch and, and everything else that is part of your reel. Is it more important to sound good in the mundane areas or is it more important in your mind to nail the big moments? I think, I think you've, you've really got to do both. Um, but I do think that more often than not, most people can nail the big moments and more people struggle in the extended stretch, you know, and after the second media timeout in the first half, you know, and it's a four, four game still, what are you going to talk about? Uh, what types of questions are you going to ask your analysts? Are you, are you able to make them the star and make them look good? Um, are you able to show the viewer uh, or the listener what it's really like in that gym and in, in that arena stadium ballpark? So I think that the, yeah, everybody wants to hear the highlights, but most people, if you're good and you've done this long enough, you, you can handle the highlights. Uh, but I think the truly great ones can dominate from opening tip to the final buzzer. How much? How important is physical appearance? And I just got done reading uh, Joe Buck's book, and early in his TV career, someone came up to him and said, you'll be great, but you need to lose 30 pounds or something. I don't want to quote it exactly. How important is physical appearance for uh, a network decision maker? I think the reality of the business is that this is a visual medium. You know, unless you're a traditionally focused radio broadcaster, and even then you still want to look your best. But it's a visual medium and people are going to judge you, whether it's executives or viewers, uh, and, and you want to look the part. And, you know, we've had clients who have said we, we've had honest conversations with them about losing weight or honest, honest conversations with them about, look, you, you look, you, you sound great, but you don't look great. And uh, we've sent them to image coaches and uh, image consultants, and they go and <laughs> talk to a, an image coach, just like you would maybe a broadcast coach. But they tell you, you know, never match this tie with this shirt again. And, you know, that type of stuff is above my pay grade. But, um, you know, all of it is important and it's a piece of the puzzle. Is there a double standard still in the industry as far as how you expect a male sportscaster to look as compared with uh, physical appearance for a female sportscaster? I think there's probably a double standard just in, in America and, um you know, across the industry. And I think most of our clients, they, they accept that, that tough reality, but they, they, all, all you can do is control the controllables. And if, if you look presentable, 
after that, it's really just about nailing your stuff. And I think that that's really what you want to be focused on. Okay. And these next questions, I don't know if you're going to be able to answer them. I'm not looking for specific numbers from specific clients or anything, but I was curious if you would mind sharing what an average person calling an NCAA tournament game can expect as far as compensation from a network, just because I feel like that's something that, you know, a lot of sportscasters struggling making, you know, a hundred, seven, a hundred or less dollars per game uh, wants to know that they have a potential more lucrative future, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're calling games at, at that type of level, obviously you're going to be making thousands of dollars uh, per game and, you know, several games in a weekend. So that can add up. Um, but I think that, that everybody who, who's doing that now at the same time understands what you're saying and has been in the hundred dollars a game or a lot, a lot of times calling games for free, whether it's in college or, or first coming out of college and, and understands that struggle. What about some of those entry level positions, uh, with networks, you know, with the ESPNUs or the Big Ten networks, uh, some of the smaller networks, what could you expect on average as far as market value? I don't, I don't want to not answer your question, but it all really depends on the network, uh, the sport. You know, it's just a reality that men's basketball is going to pay more than women's basketball. Football is going to pay the most, uh, but there's also less football games to be had. Uh, just less weekends out of the year um, and only one game a week. So uh, it's just, it's all very dependent on, on different circumstances. Well, that pretty much covers uh, the agency questions that I had. And again, I appreciate you being a good sport and being as honest as you can about it. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to, that I did dig up in the research and you touched on this a little bit in our intro you talked about being a part of uh, the Bayheim's Army basketball team for, I believe it's just called the basketball tournament, right, for ESPN for that $2 million. What is your role on that team? Obviously, you're not playing, but uh, what do you do for them? Good thing I'm not playing, uh, Logan, but <laughs> I'm uh, the general manager of the team, and it's the fun thing I do on the side. The basketball tournament was founded five, six years ago now, uh, by, by two buddies, one who was a, uh, a comedy writer in LA and one was a, a prosecutor in new Orleans. They both wanted to do something different. And they just said, Hey, if we put $2 million on the line and make it an open tournament, open basketball tournament, what type of people will sign up? And, uh, they really just started their own league and it, it happens, uh, over the summer and the month of July. And, uh, the, the very first year I had nothing to do with it, but a Notre Dame alumni team won the tournament. And back then the prize money was half a million dollars. And I just said, Hey, you know, me being a competitive guy I said, if Notre Dame can win this and put a team in it, Syracuse definitely can. So, you know, the next year I, I helped launch a team and we have a bunch of former Syracuse legends from Eric Devendorf to Hakeem Warwick. And uh, it's been a lot of fun uh, to do on the side and just be around live events and be around a bunch of, uh, former Syracuse basketball players that, you know, I used to go to school with, like I said, I was a manager for the team. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's, it's also exciting to see 
be a part of an upstart sports league and the basketball tournament has really grown leaps and bounds in, in just a few years. Do you actually help to, you know, find and recruit the former Syracuse basketball players, or are you more just, uh, you know, bringing them water in the huddle? Uh, what exactly does manager mean in this case? Both, actually. <laughs> um, my, my job, you know, I really created and founded the team, and I, I recruit and get all the players signed up and, and organize everything behind the scenes. But, yes, uh, I also do make sure that they're hydrated during the games. <laughs> Gatorade or water? Uh, I'm a water guy, and most of them are water guys, but uh, if they have a special drink, they normally bring it on their own. So I know you didn't start your career with the Montag group, and I wanted to make sure that we had plenty of time for those first questions first, but give us the Cliff Notes version of how you uh, you left Syracuse with a graduate degree and how you climbed the ladder to where you are now. Yeah. So like I, I met, touched on a little bit, but I graduated with that broadcast journalism degree in 2013. Uh, and then I stayed at Syracuse. I, I know not every agent has their law degree, but I th- it was important to me to, to learn more about the business side of things, learn about contracts. So I stayed, uh, went to law school. And at the same time, I got my master's. Uh, in Newhouse in new media management. So while I was, you know, in, in the very traditional law school classes of contracts and torts and uh, civil procedure, I was able to stay up to date on all the hot topics across media through my Newhouse classes, which was very valuable for me. And around the same time, just being networking with different, uh, staying networking with different people in the business, I got connected to Gideon Cohen, who at that time, um, was running the broadcasting of the, the sports broadcasting division of if management. And I just thought what he did was a dream job, you know, being a broad, being an agent for broadcasters like Brian Anderson and, and Jason Benetti, um, guys that everybody in the business respects. Um, I, I loved w- what he did and I got on the phone with him and he was very gracious with his time. I probably asked him a hundred questions over the course of an hour. And really after that, I, I realized that this is what I wanted to do. Like I said before, it's just, it hit all four of my passions, a little bit of sports business media and the law. And I focused in on being a sports broadcasting agent after that and interned for the federal communications commission down in DC uh, for CBS and their legal department to kind of learn about how the network side uh, views things. And then after I graduated law school, I joined if management and um, as, as an agent representing sportscasters, and about six months later, not that long after, we merged with the Montag Group. And the Montag Group was started by Sandy Montag, who for about 30 years ran IMG's broadcast division and, you know, eventually just decided he wanted to, to start his own thing. He's a very entrepreneurial guy and represents clients at the, the tops of the business, you know, the very tippy top of the business from Jim Nance to Tracy Wolfson, uh, on and on and on, Bob Costas and Mike Tirico, Sean McDonough, a lot of Syracuse guys like that. Uh, and so I, I couldn't be in a better position to learn from people like Gideon and, and Sandy and Steve Hers, who was the president of IF Management, that's uh, still running talent at the Monte Group, and Maury Gosfran, Jeff Feldman, on and on and on. So how does the process work when, for what, for lack of a better term, there's a free agent 
broadcaster out there who's looking to switch? Is it like a a free-for-all trying to recruit that person to your agency, or is that usually done uh, behind closed doors? How does the competitive process for talent go from your end? I think it all depends. Um, certainly, there are broadcasters at the highest levels who can make changes and will kind of go through the rounds and almost like they're interviewing the agencies and just go and talk to several different agencies and see who the right fit is. But for us, we really rely very, very heavily on referrals. So while we are always out there scouting and looking for clients, uh, we get a lot of clients through our own clients being out there and saying, Hey, I, I met this guy or I met this young woman and they've got a lot of potential and they're looking for an agent. You should speak with them. Um, because our clients obviously know what we're looking for, both from a talent perspective and a character pr- perspective. And the same goes for uh, executives at different networks who will tell us to check different people out. Um, so we, we try to find people really uh, when they're on their way up uh, and help them get to you know the next level and the next level and the next level. Um, so certainly sometimes we do have higher level signings, but it's more of most more most of the time it's more of an organic growth process over time where when we sign somebody, nobody knows who they are, but you know, hopefully a couple of years down the road, they're, they're making a big name for themselves. Are you allowed to name drop who some of your personal clients are? Yeah. Um, well, one of my clients um, who's, who's had a big spring recently is uh, Kevin Brown, who you know just became the youngest major league baseball voice um, at 29 years old. In addition to all of his, ESPN responsibilities, uh, doing college football, college basketball, college baseball and softball. And, you know, Kevin and I actually go back to Syracuse where when I was a freshman, still kind of pursuing the the dream, I joined WAER as a student and he was my, uh, my personnel director and he would be the one, he was a year or two older than me. And he was critiquing all my tapes uh, when I would go in at 6am on a Friday and make dummy tapes that nobody else was listening. Kevin would listen and give me feedback and try to help me get better. Uh, clearly he didn't do a great job of it because uh, it, he became the star broadcaster and, and, and I didn't, but you know, that, that's certainly uh, one relationship that I, I hold really closely and, you know, have, have a variety of clients at almost every major network um, across the country from, about 10 clients at ESPN to a handful of clients at CBS and NBC and Fox Sports and and the regional networks as well. We talk a lot uh, with people who went to Syracuse, and I'm always curious as someone who just went to a small liberal arts college in Iowa where there's like three other people working in media in the country. um, How important is it for you to have that network of Syracuse broadcasters to tap into and to have uh, those pre-existing relationships? It's important for me because there are just so many people out there that, that went to Syracuse. And I mean, first of all, it's an easy conversation starter. If you're talking to an executive who went there, we can both commiserate over, you know, the team losing in the first round of the NCAA tournament. But in terms of, you know, recruiting broadcasters, I just always know, who's coming up and um, it's really a, a very easy way to, to get in touch with different people because everybody knows everybody. It's, it's really a, a fraternity of 
you know, everybody that comes out there is very connected and always willing to help each other. How close to reality is Jerry Maguire? It's funny. Um, Jerry Maguire is a movie that I, I fell in love with when I was growing up. And um, I, I definitely think played a role in, in me wanting to do what I do right now. But it was the very first day when I was on my job here, um, still working for IF Management. And Steve Hers, who was the president of, of our company, and probably his longest client is, is Dan Shulman. You know, they've been working together for over 20 years at this point. And he, he said to me one day, you know, Kevin, I, I don't get excited in the morning to wake up and negotiate Dan Shulman's contract. And that kind of just stopped me in my tracks because, you know, I, I saw Jerry Maguire and, and I thought it was all about show me the money. And, um, and so that's what I said to him. And he said, no, he's like, of course, I want Dan to be financially secure and to be paid uh, fair market value and to be paid a lot of money and for, for his family to be secure and for us to, to you know, play, play a part in that as well and reap the rewards as well. But I think what, what I, what really gets me up in the morning is Dan Shulman getting promoted to Sunday night baseball. Um, Dan Shulman, you know, calling me the day after he, he nails an Indiana game winner uh, and getting national attention over it for Dan Shulman, getting good feedback from his bosses and just really the little wins that we play a very, very small role in, but, but that's what makes it rewarding for us to be a part of this business. Um, and, and that's what I've learned from Steve every day since joining the company. Uh, and that's something that watching Jerry Maguire didn't necessarily pick up on right away. Uh, but, you know, that that's really, I think, the real reality of the business. Do you think there's more Jerry's or Bob Sugar's out there as far as agencies uh, out there in existence right now? Uh, that's a tough one. You know, I actually have Jerry's um, I, I bought the 20th anniversary DVD of Jerry Maguire a year or two ago, and I've got his mission statement sitting on my desk. So I hope there's more uh, Jerry's out there, but uh, I'm sure that I, I know that there are some Bobs as well. All right. So I ask everybody about broadcast horror stories, and since you're usually not on the air, do you have a a sports agent horror story where everything went wrong in some laughable way, not like uh, blowing someone's contract or something. But uh, I, I don't really know what the situation would be, but I imagine it exists. What's your story? I think for us, it's just we're in the business sometimes of – we're in the business of problem solving. And a lot of that has to do with logistics. And, uh, you know, I had a client one time up in Canada who was, was called the, the day before um, – a big audition. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon and they didn't know that he worked in Canada. They had only seen his demo tape and they wanted him to be in LA by 10 AM the next morning. And it was, you know, that, that was probably being on the phone for six, six hours straight, finding, finding, uh, just being on Google flights and Google maps and figuring out if he can drive to Detroit and get through the border here. Uh, what time can he, can he, can he fly to, can he maybe fly to Sacramento and then drive from Sacramento to LA? And um, eventually we're able to get the audition pushed back to the early afternoon the following day. But uh, I don't know, maybe that doesn't sound too crazy, but that's just kind of a, a typical day in our lives. It's just problem solving and 
handling logistics and uh, making sure everybody's in the right place in the right time, which is, is not always easy. What other, you know, kind of similar, what could feel like trivial problems do you spend a lot of time solving? I think it's, uh, you know, reassuring clients that everything's going to be okay and it's all going to work out and everybody has doubts about themselves um, and if it's all worth it. But as long as you have a plan and a process and you're every day moving, moving towards that goal and following the plan, you're, you're going to be, you're going to be okay. Um, so it's, it's, that's something that we really do on a daily basis with, with clients is reassuring them that, you know, they're going to make it and that we believe in them and that it's only a matter of time until, until it hits. All right. Well, I think that is uh, just about all that I have for you today. Once again, we are talking to Kevin Belby. He is the director of sports broadcasting at the Montag Group. And Kevin, thanks for coming on and answering what what hopefully were mostly intelligent questions. Hopefully, I gave you decently intelligent answers. Uh, you you ask good questions, and like I said earlier, it's tough because a lot of these it is a subjective business. I know that's one of the first things you said and there's really no right answer to a lot of these things and um it really is a a game of persistence and uh being able to to work harder and and outlast other people who are doing this and 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 that way it's a very simple profession but obviously it's very complicated at the same time if someone wanted to reach out to you how would they do that Oh, just, uh, you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram. It's pretty simple. It's just at Kevin Belby and, you know, send me a direct message or uh, email on either one. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. And remember, iTunes reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated and helps to make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of the show so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories on the pod. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.